Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 32 of the podcast in which we will discuss chapter 10 of Prince Caspian, titled The Return of the Lion. This is a return to the podcast after a few weeks of a hiatus. Uh, we come back to revisit Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy and Trumpkin as they are journeying back to uh, reunite with Caspian for the great battle at the end of the book, the second battle of Baruna that is yet to come as they reunite uh, with Caspian and everyone at Aslan's How. Uh, in the previous uh, chapters, we saw uh, Lucy drawn toward a vision of Aslan uh, and uh, is compelled to tell the others that they are to go toward him. At the end of the last chapter, Peter makes a decision that they are not to listen to Lucy's advice, that they are to go down uh, the gorge to follow the great river. Um, he says at the end of the final, the previous chapter, I know Lucy may be right after all, but I can't help it. We must do one or the other. And he chooses against it. Uh, and we talked last time about how this is Peter's abandonment of his authority as high king. This is the abandonment of uh, his uh, responsibility as the king, as the uh, the head of this family, the head of this troop. Um, and so now, uh, as they are going in this chapter, chapter 10, down the gorge, uh, they are met with all sorts of difficulty, uh, which comes, of course, from any path of disobedience. And uh, ultimately, they are forced to turn it around, which Lewis, in another context, says that for the man who is going down the wrong path, progress is turning backwards. Uh, and I think this is a, a lesson to be learned for us today uh, and in all ages, that for the man or for the family or for the culture that is headed down the wrong path, progress is turning around. Uh, the New Testament word here is repentance. In our day and age, we believe progress is just continuing forward at all costs. We are moving forward, pushing forward, uh, and then that is progress. And turning around or turning backwards uh, is regress, but that's not always the case. And so in this small chapter, chapter 10, uh, we see a microcosm of that larger truth that in the great pilgrimage that we are on toward the glory of God, toward our destined end, of Christ-likeness, um, if we are like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, tempted to deviate from the road, and we uh, we move along a path of our own making, and we move disobediently, progress is not continuing on that path no matter what. Progress is turning around and going back to the place where everything went awry and starting over. And so for Peter, who made the wrong decision here, uh, their journey downward in this descent is met with uh, difficulty, struggle, hardship, and then ultimately with an attack. There's an arrow shot um, from some of Miraz's sentinels. Uh, and finally, they make the decision to turn around and double back. And uh, Lucy's original vision is somewhat honored there, where they go back to the start. And we're met with a second vision of Aslan here with Lucy. And so this is the title of the chapter, The Return of the Lion. And the opening line sets both of those ideas in motion, the idea of the, the difficulty of the journey, uh, especially the journey that is made in disobedience, but then also the difference between appearances and reality. Peter made the decision he made based on what he could see, that he couldn't see Lucy's vision of Aslan. He couldn't uh, 
reckon with how Aslan might appear differently than he had before. Peter had never been in a position where he he couldn't see Aslan and someone else could. And so that doesn't register with his reason. It doesn't register with his paradigm. Uh, and so there's a jar between what he sees and what is claimed as reality. Uh, and so he makes his decision based on what uh, appearances are. And so the opening line of chapter 10, Lewis says, to keep along the edge of the gorge was not so easy as it had looked. And so this is the path fraught with difficulty, the path of Peter's own making, the path of disbelief that they're trekking on that ultimately fails. But it's also a path that is not as easy as it had looked, that the quest that these uh, Pevensey children are on, the quest that you and I are on, is not as easy as it looks. Um, sometimes we wish it were easier than it is. Uh, often we wish the journey were not as hard as it turns out to be, that we'd like the journey to be easier than it ends. Uh, I'm currently reading uh, The Two Towers right now, uh, the second book in the Lord of the Rings volumes. Um, and that is a book where uh, w when the hobbits, when the Fellowship of the Ring leave the Council of Elrond, when they leave Rivendell to go on the great quest with the One Ring, uh, they go in this this almost Edenic sort of departure that they leave Rivendell emboldened with the quest. They leave as a band of nine, this Fellowship of the Ring. And then it's almost immediately that they begin experiencing all sorts of difficult trials uh, that uh, they lose Gandalf in the mines. Uh, they lose Boromir. Um, Frodo and Sam uh, depart one way. Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli go another. Uh, and, you know, in Tolkien and in Lewis's friendship, you see these shared themes. Uh, and the idea of the journey being more demanding or more difficult or more arduous than we'd like, harder than it looks, is certainly a shared theme. Um, but also the the valor and the nobility of unlikely creatures like Trumpkin the Dwarf and like Lucy Pevensey and like Frodo Baggins and Sam Gamgee, that there's a beautiful similarity there as well. In fact, in chapter 10 of Prince Caspian, we see uh, these dancing, swaying trees awakened by the presence of Aslan that remind us very much of Tolkien's Ents, uh, like Treebeard and so on, the tree people in the Two Towers. And so the first part of this chapter, the Pevensies and Trumpkin uh, try to make their way down the gorge to follow the river. Uh, it is met with all sorts of trials and difficulties. Um, there is one cheerful moment that occurs about a quarter of the way through uh, where Edmund and Peter see the fords of Baruna, where they fought uh, the first battle of Baruna at the end of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, where they conquered the white witch uh, with the, the sovereign help of Aslan. And Edmund notices this and he says, by Jove, we fought the battle of Baruna just where that town is. And Lewis says this, this cheered the boys more than anything. You can't help feeling stronger when you look at a place where you won a glorious victory, not to mention a kingdom hundreds of years ago, which is a great, is a, a wonderful line talking about how, how Peter and Edmund can remember uh, the feeling of victory and triumph that they'd experienced uh, in Narnian years, a thousand years ago, when they were kings of Narnia, but for them it was simply a year ago. But I love how Lewis, as the narrator here, directs the attention to uh, the second person. He says he begins with a third person mentioning of the boys' feelings. This cheered the boys more than anything. But then he says, "You can't help feeling stronger 
when you look at a place where you won a glorious victory, not to mention a kingdom hundreds of years ago. So it's not the first time Lewis does this, where he turns the focus of the narrative voice directly to the reader with the second person address, you. Uh, But it's almost as though Lewis is speaking from personal experience and is inviting the reader to recollect his or her own memories of great victories in their lives. You can't help feeling stronger when you look at a place where you won a glorious victory. Um, Lewis is is, uh, welcoming the reader into this shared experience of remembering great glorious triumphs, great victories. And I love that this is placed right in the middle of a journey that is stressful, difficult, demanding, and ultimately disobedient. Uh, Peter and Susan and Edmund disobeyed um, Aslan's will. They didn't listen to uh, Lucy's uh, evangelistic push uh, that that Aslan is drawing us closer to him, um, that they are ultimately going the wrong way. And yet there's a grace placed with this memory of great triumph, this memory of Aslan's move at other points in their lives. And this may even be preparation for the repentance where they eventually turn back around uh, once the the road they're on runs out. That God places, this is such a human point, God places these memories, these Ebenezers, these uh, memorials of triumph and memory and and these altars of remembrance in our lives for us to remember what God has done and these great triumphs and these glorious victories that happened one year ago, hundreds of years ago. That's why I think reading uh, reading literature on the lives of the saints, reading about uh, church history, reading about those who've gone before us and their great faith. Uh, this is Hebrews 11 uh, with this great... Uh, um, journey down the halls of uh, heroic men and women of the faith. Um, and all throughout the Old Testament, God is often uh, referred to uh, by the the God who has done great things, the God who led us out of Egypt, the God who provided. Um, and so I think here for Peter and Edmund to remark on uh, the glorious victories of the past and for that to cheer them is a bit of encouragement and a ray of light in an otherwise dreary moment in the chapter. Uh, it doesn't last long, of course, because it's at this moment that uh, arrows come whizzing past them and anchoring themselves into trees that they're under attack. Trumpkin tells them all to get down. He says, quick, quick, get back and crawl. And he drags uh, Lucy down to the ground and they all start to crawl away from the attack. And there's a particular description here that I want to read aloud because it's rather um, interesting. Another personal, uh, uh, perhaps another personal reference for Lewis as the writer here. He says this when they're under attack. They turned and wriggled along uphill under the bracken amid clouds of horribly buzzing flies. Arrows whizzed round them. One struck Susan's helmet with a sharp ping and glanced off. They crawled quicker. Sweat poured off them. Then they ran, stooping nearly double. The boys held their swords in their hands for fear they would trip them up. It was heartbreaking work, all uphill again, back over the ground they had already traveled. And I think it's difficult to read that without uh, your mind wandering perhaps to Lewis's own experiences in wartime. That Lewis fought, just like Tolkien, in the First World War. Uh, the Battle of the Somme, Lewis was on the front lines. Lewis knew trench warfare. 
um, Lewis knew what it meant to lose friends in war, um, suffered the trauma of war uh, rather intimately. And so this description of the children and of Trumpkin um, running, stooped over, doubled over, uh, crawling and wriggling uphill under arrows flying above their heads, striking Susan's helmet with a ping and glancing off, sweat pouring off of them. Um, this is this is the description of of enemy attack and enemy fire that seems to betray Lewis's own personal experiences. And so I think we're invited to consider this scene in light of Lewis's experience in World War One as another element of realism to this story that these children are growing up that in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, they were young. And uh, someone once commented on how that is a book where Aslan does all Aslan saves the day. Aslan comes in, resurrects, cracks the stone table, defeats everyone, forgives Edmund and so on. In Prince Caspian, Aslan uh, is still of course a presence as we see in this chapter, but he's a presence that is inviting the children to grow, to grow into their responsibilities to grow into wisdom and virtue. Um, in fact, it's the task he gives Lucy is to awaken the others to obey and to follow her leading, even if they can't see him, that he's almost um, offering this thread for the children that they have to pull on as a way of growing into the men and women that they're destined to be. And part of this includes difficult quests, enemy fire, uh, hard decisions that aren't always easy and aren't always made correctly and learning from them and humbling themselves. And so Prince Caspian very much in that sense is a more mature novel in the Narniad, um, but it's one in which Aslan still shows grace. Aslan shows mercy, uh, which we'll see when Lucy comes to him, um, that he forgives her for not sticking to uh, his command earlier, not committing to it, not following her convictions. Uh, and gives her a second opportunity. And so it's to that vision of Aslan that I want us to turn. Lucy falls asleep. They have supper. Um, once they've doubled back, the children have doubled back from the ravine, um, gone back to where they've started, and they have bear meat for dinner and fall asleep. And Lucy is awakened by a voice. Uh, and much like Samuel in uh, in the account in 1 Samuel, where he hears the voice of the Lord, calling to him while he's asleep. And he thinks it's Eli's voice. Um, Devin Brown in his commentary makes that connection between Lucy here and Samuel in the Old Testament. But listen how Lewis invites Lucy back into this vision of Aslan. Lucy woke out of the deepest sleep you can imagine with the feeling that the voice she liked best in the world had been calling her name. She thought at first it was her father's voice, but that did not seem quite right. Then she thought it was Peter's voice, but that did not seem to fit either. Let me pause there for a moment. Notice when Lucy hears Aslan calling her name, uh, she is tempted to believe it is the voice of her father, and she's tempted to believe it's the voice of Peter, her high king, the high king of Narnia. Um, and so in this way, she is getting the, she's hearing the voice and she's getting part of it right, that this is the voice of a father, and this is the voice of a king, but not her father and not Peter. This is Aslan, the ultimate father, the ultimate king, the representation of Christ himself calling her. And so you see these spots and these openings of the truth as Lucy's awakening to it uh, as a prelude to the, the 
full manifestation of Aslan when she sees him face to face and buries her head in her hands in his mane. Lucy came the call again, neither her father's voice nor Peter's. She sat up, trembling with excitement, but not with fear. Notice that. She sat up, trembling with excitement, but not with fear. The moon was so bright that the whole forest landscape around her was almost as clear as day, though it looked wilder. This is one of Lewis's favorite themes uh, that appears certainly in Narnia, but also across his whole uh, body of work. And this is that notion of the numinous. We've talked about it before. Um, this idea of the holy, the transcendent, the, um, the sacramental and the sacred that exists braided throughout all of our reality are these glimpses of glory, these suggestions of glory, suggestions of paradise uh, that awaken within us this um, trembling excitement, this sense of uh, awe and wonder, but also of holiness and sobriety, but not fear. It's not the fear that has to do with punishment, but the fear that comes with, with ultimate reverence. Uh, Lucy is feeling these prickles of the numinous yet again, as Aslan is calling to her to awaken from her slumber and to come further up and further in, as it were, to to uh, ascend into the presence of Aslan from her sleep. And this is described by Lewis as a wild event. The moonlight and the landscape looks wilder. Uh, Lewis says in the next paragraph, she got up her heart beating wildly uh, as she walks toward uh, the tree line and she walks ultimately toward the presence of Aslan. Now, the, the beautiful part of this, I'm not gonna read the whole description of it, but here's where Lewis really uh, unveils this image of the trees awakening to the presence of Aslan and and walking and swaying and dancing together. This idea of the, the gods and the spirits of the trees awakening to Aslan. You get something similar in The Magician's Nephew when Aslan creates Narnia. Um, and we see it in pieces throughout uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. But um, there's this beautiful consummation or this Un this unification, this reunion between Lucy and the natural world that comes in this scene. Um, and it reminds me of that, uh, that statement in Mark where Jesus heals the blind man and uh, Jesus asks him what he sees. And he says, I see men like trees walking. This is a very cryptic line in the New Testament that I just am, am in love with. I see men like trees walking. That Lucy is walking through the natural world of Narnia as it is coming back to life as it is being awakened. At the end of this chapter, Aslan says that all of Narnia is about to be renewed. And so you see this presence of Aslan working its magic, not just in Lucy, but also in the trees, in the world of nature, as the trees wade in the air, as uh, Lewis says, they wade in the air as we do in water. They don't step, but they sort of wade about. At the end of that description, Lucy says, they are almost awake. Not quite, said Lucy. She knew she herself was wide awake, wider than anyone usually is. It's a great phrase that uh, Narnia is beginning to be renewed, beginning to be resurrected away from Miraz's uh, industrial, modern sort of tyranny. And it's about to be reawakened, but not quite. But she knew she herself was wide awake wider than anyone usually is. 
Now, why is Lucy wider awake than anyone usually is? Because she is hearing the call of Aslan and she's following it. That's why. Uh, this whole chapter is a case study in um, the call and response of God with his creatures. The God calls to us. Uh, Aslan, in another context, says, you would not have come to me if, unless I have unless I had called you. You would not have called to me unless I had called to you. In John, uh, he says um, that uh, we love because he first loved us. That There's this call and response uh, relationship that we have with our maker, that when he calls to us and we come, that is the beginning of the awakening. And when we are following that thread of obedience, chasing after the voice of God and the holiness of God, we are wider awake than anyone usually is. Um, you see this reflection on, on uh, awakening, coming awake to what is true and real in the allegory of the cave in Plato, where Plato depicts all of humankind as enslaved to this shadow land. Um, that's a favorite image of Lewis's as well. In the last battle, uh, one of the final chapters is called Farewell to Shadowlands. Uh, that Lewis, uh, and also in the silver chair, he operates with this sort of platonic level of the underworld and the overworld, the sleeping world and the waking world, the shadow lands and the land of substance, the land of um, ultimate things. Narnia is richer and greater, come further up and further in. He does this in The Great Divorce as well, where heaven is more solid than earth. It is thicker and more real than earth. So here Lucy is following the call of Aslan and therefore is wider awake than anyone usually is. Lewis continues, she went fearlessly in among them, dancing herself as she leapt this way and that to avoid being run into by these huge partners, the trees. But she was only half interested in them. She wanted to get beyond them to something else. It was from beyond them that the dear voice had called. So uh, there you see the order of Lucy's loves is correct. The order of her affections what Augustine calls the Ordo Amoris, the order of our loves is correct, where she loves the trees of Narnia and she even dances and participates with them. She loves the landscape. She loves the Narnian world, but she loves them for the voice that comes from beyond it. She knows how to identify the, the captain of her loves, that there is an ultimate hierarchy to the things that have awakened her. And she recognizes it's the voice calling that is the end of her pursuit, not the beauty or the romance or the enchantment of what is occurring around her, lovely though it may be, it's the voice that awakened all of them. It's the voice that calls beyond them uh, that is inviting her further up and further in. At the end of that paragraph, she sees Aslan and then, oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. And she rushes to him and she sobs, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, at last. And those two words are just staggering in all of their implications. Aslan, at last. It recalls the prophecy of the beavers, um, that there was this, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there was this long-standing expectation of Aslan's arrival. Um, as I uh, The date of recording this is December of 2020, so we have just begun the Advent season of awaiting the arrival of Christ the King and his birth. 
And so those two words, at last, they appear throughout this book. Um, Aslan, at last, this this, uh, manifestation of the miraculous, this manifestation of glory, this manifestation of all things. Everything is here. Um, Emmanuel, God with us. And now Aslan is here with Lucy, and Lucy says, at last. And then we have one of the most beloved conversations um, in all of the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan says, welcome, child. Lucy says, Aslan, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. It's a beautiful conversation between Lucy and Aslan, where Lucy says that Aslan is bigger and Aslan says, no, 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 I, um, uh, Aslan tells Lucy, uh, uh, Lucy tells Aslan that he's bigger. And he says, that is because you are older. And so Aslan doesn't age. He says, it's not because I'm older that I'm bigger. Aslan says, I'm bigger because you have grown. That every year you grow, you will find me bigger. This is a beautiful lesson in the perspective of faith. That as we walk with Aslan, as we grow in wisdom and in virtue, we see more of Aslan. We see more of Christ. Uh, the same is true of perspectives in in uh, most senses. Some of us have done um, that trick you do when you're a, a tourist in another country or in another city or something, and you're standing in front of some great landmark, and you uh, hold open your finger and your thumb as though you're about to wrap them around the Eiffel Tower or the Empire State Building or something, where because you are standing so much in front of it, it appears small in the background. Uh, such that you feel like you could put your hand over it or lean against it or something, those little gimmicks. Um, But we all know that the closer you draw toward something, the bigger it gets. That the person who sees the Eiffel Tower from miles and miles away is going to see a small Eiffel Tower. The person who sees the Empire State Building on the horizon is going to see a small Empire State Building. And yet, as you draw near to it, it grows and it doesn't physically grow. It's always the same size, but it grows as you grow. It gets bigger as you draw nearer. And this is what's true of Aslan. And it's true scripturally uh, in James, I believe it is. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Um, that as you grow, you find Aslan bigger, um, mightier, stronger, more glorious, more welcoming. This is the promise of uh, of the gospel. It's the promise of the Chronicles of Narnia, certainly. The title of this podcast is Further Up and Further In. Uh, the the ultimate Narnia at the end of the last battle is greater and bigger. Um, Doug Wilson calls it an inverse Russian doll, where as you go further in, it gets bigger and bigger, not smaller and smaller. Uh, and so this is a beautiful inkling toward that ultimate reality, that as you grow, as you deepen your faith, Aslan grows bigger. Um, that you see more and more of it because you are drawing nearer and nearer to it. It's a beautiful truth that Aslan invokes for Lucy here. Um, uh, Aslan chides her a bit for having not followed his direction earlier. Um, whereas the Lucy of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was quite young um, and innocent and needed some handholding from Tumnus and from Aslan and from Peter and Susan uh, and from the Beavers. Now, 
uh, Aslan's expectations of Lucy have deepened. Lucy has grown. She's now more responsible. And so he chides her a bit for having not followed through with his instructions earlier. Yet he shows grace. Uh, he gives a second chance and gives both the command of responsibility, but also of grace. Um, someone once uh, the someone once said of of um, uh, of Aslan in, in Prince Caspian, where Aslan is expecting more of the children that he might have done in the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Um, there's this belief that rather than having a father in heaven, we have a grandfather in heaven. Um, and that view of Aslan seems to apply here where uh, many of us want a grandfather who is happy to give us only encouragement and only love and only grace and only nurturing and so on. But what we have is a father, which uh, a father gives grace and gives mercy and guidance, but a father also gives instruction and gives discipline. In Hebrews, it talks about uh, the father that loves his child disciplines his child. And so there's a disciplinary element to Aslan here that's followed up with an immediate grace element. So just when Aslan corrects Lucy for what she ought to have done, he says this, It is hard for you, little one, said Aslan, but things never happen the same way twice. It has been hard for us all in Narnia before now. Lucy buried her head in his mane to hide from his face, but there must have been magic in his mane. She could feel lion strength going into her. Quite suddenly, she sat up. I'm sorry, Aslan, she said. I'm ready now. So notice how uh, Lucy's responding to Aslan's instruction. Aslan rebukes her, corrects her, but then says, it is hard for you, little one, and shows compassion and understanding and invites her to uh, connect with him on a very intimate level. This is something that happens in The Magician's Nephew as well, where Diggory and Aslan, Diggory is a young boy, uh, and Aslan have this conversation where Aslan uh, gives Diggory instructions, gives him responsibilities that he's expected to obey when he goes to retrieve the silver apple from the garden uh, and escape the temptations of Jadis. Uh, but he also shows compassion and understanding uh, regarding Diggory's mother, and uh, Aslan uh, even weeps along with Diggory. And so there's this beautiful balance and this beautiful harmony between Aslan's instruction and discipline and his compassion and his grace. That when Lucy buries her head in his mane to hide from his face, it's in that moment that uh, she discovers the magic in his mane. Joseph Pierce in his book on Narnia talks about how that the magic in Aslan's mane is the magic of grace. And it's when she buries her face in his mane and feels the magic in it, Lewis says she could feel lion strength going into her. And it's at that point she sets, she sits up, apologizes to Aslan and says, I'm ready now. That she's received the grace that Aslan offers and she's ready to obey, ready to try again on that second chance. And Aslan uh, affirms her repentance, affirms her readiness and says, you are now a lioness and all of Narnia will be renewed. So at the end of the chapter, Lucy goes back to awaken Peter and Susan and Edmund, uh, returning again to um, what we saw previously, where she's um, evangelistic here, offering the good news that Aslan is with them and he is calling them upward. And she recognizes it is not an easy task to awaken people who are sleeping, to convince them to do something that they can't see or understand. Uh, and yet now, having just received grace from Aslan, and experienced an intimate connection with him, she is 
strengthened and confident to do so. So she goes to awaken the others. Uh, Peter hardly stirs. Susan grumbles. Edmund awakens, um, but even, and is uh, cheerful at the prospect of Aslan's presence. But um, again, uh, tries to convince her that she's simply seeing things. So we see that Lucy's task is not an easy one. And yet she must go and awaken the others. And I mentioned Plato's allegory of the cave earlier about those who have been awakened to the truth are commanded and called to go back to those who are still in the shadow world, those who are still enslaved uh, to the false vision, uh, and to try to awaken them to the truth. This is what the task of education is. Um, education itself is it comes from the word educare, uh, which in Latin means to lead out. And that's the idea you are leading people out of darkness into light, out of slumber into the waking world, out of falsehood into the light of truth. Um, and this is Lucy's task, and she ends the chapter on that. I want to end with a poem that's written by a man named Lawrence Tribble back in the 18th century, this American poet. And he says this, One man awake awakens another. The second awakens his next door brother. The three awake can rouse a town by turning the whole place upside down. The many awake can cause such a fuss, it finally awakens the rest of us. One man up with dawn in his eyes, surely then multiplies. What a beautiful reminder that Lucy's task, one man awake, awakens another. The second awakens his next door brother. The three awake can rouse a town by turning the whole place upside down. This is how you change the world. One man awake, awakening another. So thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time as we look at chapter 11 in Prince Caspian titled, The Lion Roars.